is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories of people who've risen above their circumstance, risen above adversity. And today we have a story of a woman who's done just that and is now giving back to her community. Take it away, Faith. Nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, difficulty. I have never in my life envied a human being who led an easy life. I have envied a great many people who led difficult lives and led them well. Theodore Roosevelt Trials, difficulty, money shortages, empty fridges, unpaid electric bill, unpaid water bill. These are the realities that many Americans face. Some families face small difficulties. While for others, it involves losing your job, not being able to pay rent, and then getting kicked out of your home or apartment. And according to the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, women and families are the fastest growing segment of the homeless population, with 34% of the total homeless population composed of families. Of these homeless families, 84% are headed by women. Now, being homeless can feel, well, hopeless. But for Vanessa Howard, not only did she work herself out of homelessness, she is now giving back in amazing ways, helping those who have been in the same situation that she has. And how is she doing this? She does this by providing free haircuts and makeovers in her salon called Giving Hands. Let's begin by hearing her tell her story. Now, how did Vanessa end up homeless in the first place? Um, I was actually living with living with my grandmother. My grandmother passed away. My grandmother was like the she was like the backbone of our family. She kind of reminded me of a Mother Teresa. I think I, I think I have a lot of ways like my grandmother in terms of how I give. She would, you know, take in homeless people. She would take in just, you know, she she would give the clothes off of her back. She lived in a project. She would feed everybody, clothe everybody, and whoever had a need, she was there. I was living with her. She passed away. Um, I went through some other things that was very detrimental. <clears throat> so that's that's how I literally became homeless. It was, yeah, it was, a, it was definitely, definitely a, a breaking point. I lost my grandmother and then also um, my children's father portrayed, uh, portrayed me. I mean, uh, yeah, he was unfaithful and it was just a lot to take. She was a homeless single mother with a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old. There were many times where she wanted to commit suicide and wanted to end the pain, the hurt, the hurt that she felt from abandonment, from abuse. But she told me about times when she would be crying, when her kids would come and comfort her, tell her that it was going to be okay. Kids understand more than we realize. So in the midst of all of this struggle, she thought to cry out to God. So why was it that she turned there? What led me to, I, I really can't tell you what led me just, just being at the, the, the darkest place I've ever been in in my entire life is really what made me 
cry out to God. I, I didn't grow up in a church background, so I didn't really, it, w it wasn't like I was taught religion or I was brought to church that made me or I was coming back to my roots or anything because I wasn't brought up in church. You know, as a matter of fact, part of my life at the age of 12, my mom and my stepdad was, was on drugs. They were strung out on drugs. So um, I really didn't have any background that made me cry out to God but what I just truly believe in my heart is that it's just you know I know we've been created by God and so I believe because I'm, I've been created by him that what's in me is going to come out so I believe I cried out because there was really nowhere else to turn matter of fact when I prayed the prayer I just said God if you are real please help me and my children after this last ditch effort of praying crying out to God something amazing happened. When I got up the next day, I felt like there was hope. I don't know how to explain it, but I felt like something happened with that prayer and I didn't understand it. And I said, well, let me just go do one more try with the little money that I had. And I looked in the newspaper and saw that they were renting this, renting this place and I caught the bus. And, and, and lo and behold, you know, when I walked in the room, I mean, I just literally walked in the door. And when I walked into the place, the guy, he kind of looked at me really weird, like a double take. And he was like, I don't know you, ma'am. But he says, I feel like you're supposed to have this place. Like something is telling me to give you this place. He's like, it's really weird. But he was like, if you want it, you can have it. He didn't ask me to fill out an application or anything. As a matter of fact, I didn't even call the man back for two weeks. And he still held the apartment for me because I was afraid because I didn't have all the money. And so I called him during the time where this lady was kicking me and my children out at 2 o'clock in the morning. I called him up and, he, and I was crying on the phone. And he was like, ma'am, I've been holding this place for you for two weeks. He was like, you know, you told me you want it. I told you you can have it. And I told him, you know, I was homeless and me and my children are being kicked out right now on the streets. And he was like, well, just if you can find a way to get to the apartment now, I'm, I will give you the place. I will, I will meet you over there and give you the, the keys to the apartment. And I literally had to hold back tears because this man, he doesn't know my situation. He don't know that I'm suicidal. I was just blown. I was blown away. And I had been looking for places. Nobody would rent to me because I didn't have any background or you know, I didn't have a job at the time, so nobody would give me anything. And so I was looking for a job. I mean, everything was just falling apart in my life. And so, like I said, I prayed that prayer. The very next day, I felt different. I can't even explain. I just felt different. I felt like there was hope. And after moving into this apartment, her life continued to change. I moved upstairs and I believe that God moved, I believe that was the door he opened for me because I moved upstairs to a minister and they started doing Bible study with me and um, yeah, well my life was, there was something else to the story, my life was almost taken, I got in a relationship with this guy who tried to kill me and finally got prayed and asked him to get out of my life, he didn't want me to go to church and, and there was a minister that lived upstairs and she literally started um, teaching Bible study out of her house, you know, to me and I would go up there and, and um, so once, you know, he was out of my life and I was able to really, really dedicate my life to Christ. And when we come back, more of Vanessa's story and faith plays such a central role in so many American stories that we put it right there too, whenever it should be there. More on Vanessa's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Vanessa Howard's story. She's the owner of the salon called Giving Hands, a salon that offers free services to the less fortunate. We left off with her recounting how she pulled herself out of homelessness. Let's return to Faith and her story about Vanessa Howard. So she got off the streets and got her life back on track. But how did the salon get started? And how was it that she started doing hair? I've always been gifted to do hair. I've, I've always did hair, did family members hair, you know, back when we lived in Wisconsin. When we moved here, it's when, uh, and as a teenager, you know, if I can go back, you know, I did want to always, I said, I always want to own a salon, a beauty salon and, and everything. And that was kind of like a part of my dream. And I just kind of let it go because my life just took a turn. Yeah, so when we moved here is when, you know, the Lord spoke to me and said, um, I want you to, you know, go to school and get your, your license and go to hair. And he said, and then that's when he started giving me the name of it and, and the vision of it and the purpose of the salon and everything. And and so I was like, okay, you know, and so um, um, that's when, you know, Giving Hands Beauty Salon, I actually worked at a few salons prior to starting opening up the salon. Yeah, so I opened up the salon of January 2014 and May 4th, 2014, he told me to start. And I didn't have a clue of what I was doing. I didn't know, you know, I just know what he told me to do and I just kind of went as I, you know, I just kind of did it. I didn't have like a full blueprint of how, to, I didn't know how it was gonna turn out. I didn't know, I just knew. He told me to just have these broken women come in and children and, and the youth. And he said, I just want you, I want you all to just pour love upon them. The women come in and get makeovers, their hair done, nails, eyebrows, and whatever else that they need in order to feel beautiful and confident. You know, we spend about anywhere between six to eight hours with these women. Uh, building them up, building their confidence, their self-esteem, praying for their needs. You know, we have a 98% success rate in terms of the women have gotten jobs and homes after leaving uh, the spa days. And so, yeah, so we do a full cater lunch every single time. We always, you know, we, we, we make sure we feed them really good. We have break bread and have lunch with them and talk with them. And then we start the services on them. And, you know, we try to serve them hand and foot. We literally try to lay the red carpet out for them because they are, although they're going through what they're going through, you know, um, they are loved and they are they are somebody, even in that estate. And that's really my point that I'm trying to get out because I didn't have that support. I didn't have somebody telling me that they love me and telling me that, you know, that I'm beautiful and that I'm special or I'm this or I'm that. I didn't have that. So I want to make sure that doing, the, this, doing their transition that they have that and while Vanessa did not have that support she wants to make sure others are getting what they need to overcome their difficulties that's pretty incredible Vanessa shares a story of a woman who came to receive this service and continued to keep up with them after so most of the women who come to the to the, to the give back or to the spa days most of them come and they of course they're in the, they're in the shelter they don't have they, um, they don't have jobs, you know, um, they don't have anywhere to stay. So, um, so they, most of them interview after coming. That's why I said um, one shelter gave us the success rate and said, first of all, when the ladies leave, they're like so overwhelmed with, so, they said they never felt so, so loved. 
and they come back and they tell all the other women and they say they go and all these interviews so confident and so built up. I have a few, several women that I still keep in contact with and one of them actually volunteered um, with us. She's a part of the team now. And one of them actually got, they got a job and um, at a radio show and her first, her first guest, she had me on. And I was just so blown away because I'm sitting across from her with the same one that we, you know, we helped, we prayed for. We, she not only got, you know, she got a job and she's like running this radio station. And I was so honored because she said she wanted me to be her first guest. And this was the same lady that came in so broken, so hurt, um, had been a part of the uh, abuse in relationships and domestic violence. And, and just to watch her just a couple months after coming here just flourish, it's amazing. And one of the most amazing things that the salon has done for women is encourage and empower them. And sometimes it is done with just one word. There was a 62-year-old lady that came to one of our events from one of the shelters. And I have a habit of calling women beautiful. It's just what I do, you know, because I believe all women are beautiful inside and out. And I said, you know, my, my um, volunteers kind of say what I say. So the, the lady walked in and she literally was only in the salon maybe about a couple minutes. We had just greeted them. I talked to them about giving hands, uh, the foundation and everything. Um, told them why they were there. We were just there to love on them and to serve them today. We want you to relax, make yourself at home. So everybody was hugging. You know, my volunteers always, always hug the ladies and, you know, love on them and tell them, hey, beautiful, how are you? You know, you're so beautiful. And they always call them beautiful. And the 62-year-old lady, I was set her down and do her eyebrows, and she just started bawling, crying. And I'm like, well, what's wrong? What's wrong, love? You know, what's wrong, beautiful? She was like, you're not going to believe this. She's like, I'm already full, and I've just gotten here. She said, if, if the rest of the day is going to be like this, she was like, I, my cup is going to overflow. She said, you're not going to believe this, but I'm 62 years old, and I've never heard those words directed to me. I've never, I've never heard anybody call me beautiful, you know, and so it reminded me literally of where I come from, not really getting that support outside of my grandmother. I just, oh God, I'm tearing up. It just broke my heart, you know, this lady is 62 two years old and nobody's ever told her, she's never heard those words direct, you know, personally said to her. You know, the need out here is just so great. And through these acts of kindness, Giving Hands Salon is meeting that need. In light of what she has been through, Vanessa offers all of us some perspective on those around us. But you know, sometimes in life, we, you know, we stay in our little small worlds and we stay in doing our own thing. It's just about me and mine. And we forget about this big world that people are out here and people are hurting. People are going through. People are struggling. People are, you know, um, a lot of women, you know, are masking with just outer beauty and within they're broken, you know, they're hurting. They, you know, they look good on the outside, but the inside is just so empty and they don't feel love. They don't feel like they're somebody, you know, and so that's really my mission. My mission is really to bring people to Christ and allow them to experience the love that he demonstrated to me 25 years ago. And um, that's my mission. That is my mission is really to build one soul, one person at a time, you know, and, and to share that, that, that love, share that love. It gets even better because this is not just Vanessa's service. Her whole family is involved. 
Her kids and her husband are immensely supportive and have a heart for the homeless as well. And they don't plan on it ending here. Vanessa Howard, in light of all of her difficulties, has a vision for an even brighter future. So this is not just, you know, a give back. It's, it's, it's my ministry as well. I want to, my, the bigger picture for this is I'm going to open up my own shelter. Um, I actually had a vision while I was homeless of a shelter. God took me into an open vision and showed me this shelter. I firmly believe that everything that I've been through, every tear, every cry, every hurt, every pain, you know, it, being a, feeling abandoned, uh, even, you, you know, and not accepted even by my mom. I know that all that has have a purpose. There is in every woman's heart a spark of heavenly fire, which lies dormant in the broad daylight of prosperity, but which kindles up and beams and blazes in the dark hour of adversity. Washington Irving. Vanessa, she knows and believes that her pain has had a purpose. And it most certainly has. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories. And thanks for that, Faith. And thank you, Vanessa, for teaching us all about the role and reminding all of us about the role that faith and love of God has for so many Americans. And what a what a life-saving ministry she's in, engaged in now. I never heard anyone call me beautiful, one of the women that she tends to said. Just imagine that. And that's the kind of story we bring you here on Our American Stories, uh, stories we hope that'll make you laugh, think, or cry, and we never avoid the hard ones and the sad ones because right on the other end of that pain and loneliness was the purpose for Vanessa And for any of you out there who are going through hard times, at least for many of us, there's refuge in God, in friends, and in total strangers. This is Lee Habib, Vanessa's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, where we love to tell great stories about music, sports, arts, love, death, and business, and occasionally about our government and its impact on our lives. And for the longest time, we'd been talking about in our studio about the role of this show and mostly its storytelling, but periodically we're going to poke around into stories about our own government because the fourth estate and that is journalism, is supposed to protect us from an over-encroaching government. And that was always the rule and role of the First Amendment. And all too often now, you're not hearing enough stories about, about that and about the impact of government, and particularly government corruption, on our lives. And so when and where we find those stories, 
We're going to drill down deep on them because it's a core part of our show, talking about things like separation of powers, driving power to the local level whenever possible, to keep government accountable to the people. It's a simple idea, we the people, and it's a fundamental part of our American stories, is that we honor the story and the impact individuals can have and want to keep government at bay whenever we can. And today, our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, brings us this story. October 3rd, 2013. Directed by a court order, the police raid four Wisconsin homes in the middle of the night. I rushed downstairs thinking the worst. With their children there. Armed officer goes into the bedrooms of the kids and wakes them up. Who were sound asleep. It was about 5.30, it was dark outside. I hear a pounding on the door. This 16-year-old, Noah Johnson, was home alone. Mine's racing a mile a minute. His parents left early that morning for work and weren't there when their home was raided. I'm looking around outside. There are flashlights everywhere on the sidewalk around the house. The police wouldn't let Noah call his parents. They didn't let me call anyone. He couldn't let them know what happened, that he was safe. Deborah Jordahl's home was also raided, and this is what they told her. We would be subject to jail time and a fine if we told anybody about the search on our home. Did they say why? No. For that kind of show of force, with battering rams and taking everything, Children's computers were seized with homework on them. We're told to lie about it. So, you know, the old, the old thing, the dog ate my homework. How's it sound, you know, I lost my computer. Where'd you lose it? I don't know. You'd think these families were dangerous. Does it mean her husband's a pedophile? Uh, does it mean they're big-time drug dealers? But they weren't. You're supposed to have extraordinary circumstances to do a raid in the dark. And by the way, to do a home raid at all that's aggressive with, you know, flak-vested people and lights is supposed to require some risk of flight, danger, destruction of evidence, none of which is present at all. There's none of that. The crime alleged against him? A violation of campaign finance laws. Campaign finance laws. How boring. But the government's response? all too exhilarating for these families. Is this an appropriate tactic for any kind of campaign finance question? Where physical danger to the public isn't a question. See, madness, as you know, is like gravity. All it takes is a little push. And these folks, who are primarily engaged in raising money and creating television commercials, aren't exactly the most intimidating characters on the block. They could have knocked, I would have let them in. Unlike these guys. I spent 14 years in an finite cell surrounded by people who were less than human. My mission in that time was to become more than human. 
Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm specifically alleged that these individuals were involved in illegal coordination between Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker's campaign and nonprofit organizations who advocate for public policy positions. Well before the raids, Chisholm had the most private information from these individuals taken from them without giving them notice prior to seizing them, violating the Stored Communications Act, a federal law. They already had our emails, we subsequently learned. They already had our bank records. They knew what we were doing. We were proud of what we were doing. They didn't ask us. These raids were not really based on any belief that they would find incriminating information. The person speaking, Eric O'Keefe, said that it was a shutdown play to scare them into submission. Thankfully for Eric, his was one of the few homes that were not raided. One was mine. They didn't raid it because uh, I live in a rural area and the Democratic District Attorney didn't trust the Republican sheriff to conduct the raid and keep quiet about it. They were all told that they had to keep quiet about it because it's what's called a John Doe investigation, a special kind of secret investigation where all parties, the prosecutors, the police, and the defendants all have to keep mum. It's supposedly meant to protect innocent people's good name if the charges against them are dropped. But it also can protect overly zealous prosecutors, like this one, John Chisholm, the guy who requested the dark of the night raids and the illegal seizure of records from public scrutiny. Public scrutiny that brings accountability. And the public needed to know about this, Eric O'Keefe believed. And so he told them about it in violation of the secrecy order. An unconstitutional secrecy order, and I'm, I'm defying the secrecy order. Right now. Yes. Putting himself in greater danger of being sent to prison. But to O'Keefe, the greatest danger is having our rights taken away from us. In silence. What I want to have now in Wisconsin is debate about who is sovereign in Wisconsin. Do we have, are we ruled by the government or do we the people oversee the government? I think it's the job of the people to hold the government accountable. They have inverted the American idea of popular sovereignty. Meanwhile, government bureaucrats and this prosecutor in particular have ignored their primary job, the foundational purpose of government, to keep its citizens safe. Murders are way up, carjackings are up, the uh, administration in Milwaukee has a no-chase policy for car thefts, so the drug trade is now run from stolen cars, and there are, there, uh, are multiple car thefts every day, and they just rotate them, and they have, uh, they have teenagers do the stealing, and they put them in, and they do their transactions from them until they have a chase that gets enough of an ID, then they dump the car. And uh, that is the kind of thing that a district attorney responsible for the citizens might be working on instead of raiding the homes of people who don't even live in his county. In July of 2015, the Wisconsin Supreme Court declared the John Doe investigation unconstitutional and ordered it to be shut down for good. The court also ordered the prosecutors to return the over 6 million records they seized from the targeted individuals. And yet somehow... Some way, the Guardian newspaper received sealed court records that included many of these communications and published them over a year later on September 14, 2016. Now, who would leak such a thing? 
the sad thing is that it doesn't take much thought to take a guess. This sad saga continues. Stay tuned. And great job on that, Alex. And what a story. I love that line from Eric O'Keefe. Are we ruled by the government or do we run our government? And again, these are the kind of stories we'll dig into. You'll get the other part of this story very soon. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, the John Doe investigation in Wisconsin. American stories, and that's right, you heard it, you heard her. It's time for our roundup of Judge Judy, and we watch it so you don't have to. It's one of the great shows in American history, and it's still on, and it's on an hour every day. That's baloney. No, it's true. You just don't watch it. I do. Anytime I get a chance. Four to five o'clock in Memphis, Judge Judy's on for an hour. Anything else, Judge? Just do me a favor. Step yourself outside. You're irritating me. It's my courtroom. And so, Greg, what do we got this week? What do we got from Judge Judy? Um, Well, this is the case of the moronic, foolish, marginal mother. And those are Judge Judy's words. So we're kind of knowing what we're getting into here. Yeah, I think we do. Jesse, let's let's take a listen. This is Judge Judy. David Johnson is suing his ex-wife, Kathleen Kreftmeyer, for the cost of a paternity test and lost wages. David says Kathleen told his 11-year-old daughter that he was not her biological father. Quiet in the courtroom. All rise. I can't wait to hear the details of this case. Mr. Johnson, you and the defendant had been married. Yes. You have two children together, and you were divorced for the last 10 years. Yes, ma'am. The children are 11 and 15. Yes, ma'am. So that when you divorced, your youngest daughter was a year old. Right. And your oldest was five. Yes, ma'am. Your complaint is that your former wife insisted upon a paternity test after all this time, questioning whether the 11-year-old, who has been your daughter since birth, was your biological child. Is your claim that you had an agreement with her that if the test proved that you were the child's father, that she would pay for the test. That's correct, Your Honor. The defendant, put your hand down. The defendant, what I'm going to get to in a minute, says that it was your present wife's idea to have this paternity test. She just was accommodating. Do you have a copy of your judgment of divorce? I don't, Your Honor. Do you have a copy of your judgment of divorce? I'd like to see it, please. You filed for divorce, is that right? Yes, I did. You were the plaintiff. The grounds were irreconcilable differences. Yes. Is that right? Yes. When you filed the complaint for irreconcilable differences, you listed two children. Is that right? Yes. Two girls? Yes. You asked for child support for both girls, correct? Yes. yes. Good. Now, if you sense a certain harshness in my tone, it's because unless I was reading incorrectly in your answer, you say that five years ago, when your daughter was six years old, you had a talk with her. 
and you told her that there was a chance that he wasn't her father. Yes. And you did that because I don't believe in keeping secrets from my kids. Yes. You're a moron. You are a moron. I eat morons like you up for breakfast. <laughs> oh, she does. She does. And by the way, this is why people love Judge Judy. I think she says the things that 90% of America is thinking, and she just says it. And by the way, for those who don't know how Judge Judy came to be known, 60 Minutes, many years ago, did a 15-minute piece of one of their long segments on Judge Judy's family courtroom, which, by the way, for those of you who live in the New York area, was notoriously entertaining, such that it was always filled to capacity. And she entertained the courtroom, she dispersed justice, and 60 Minutes did a piece. Then they did another piece a year later, 30 Minutes. And from that came a hit book and, of course, this remarkable show. Right. Yeah, that's right. Hey, look, can I, can I plug you without a... Okay. Little, okay. Judge Judy is not done, though, with this case. Take a listen. You are an example of why people should have to take tests before they're allowed to have children. Why in the world would you tell a six-year-old child that somebody who she believed was her father, who it turns out is her father, might not be her father. Because there was that chance. He knew, his mom Don't knew, Don't tell me what he knew. knew. I'm not asking you what he knew. I'm not asking you what his mother knew. I'm asking you why you would tell that to a six-year-old child. David never had really anything to do with them kids. He was out of their life. It wasn't like she knew him as the only father ever. Yeah. Just a second. Who are you? Boyfriend. Do you work? Yes. What do you do for an alleged living? I'm a construction. Cross your hands. You work for your father? Yes, I do. Move over there. Are you paid in check or cash? Cash. How do I know that? How did I know to ask such a good question? Hmm? How did I know that? I don't know, Your Honor. <laughs> What's your social security number? And six. When was the last time you filed tax returns? A couple years back. Mm -hmm. How did I know to ask that question? You think that I'm psychic? You think that I have a crystal ball back there? No. How many children do you have? I don't have any. Sit down. Don't make any. Not with her. Yes, ma'am. Do you understand? Yes, ma'am. Something's wrong with her. Big time. Much smarter than you are. Oh. On your best day, <laughs> you're not as smart as I am on my worst day. No, no. And by the way, again, this is why Judge Judy's amazing. I mean, she just, she reads people as if she'd grown up, well, in the street corners of New York City where there were three-card Monte artists and con artists everywhere. She just sniffs them out. Let's keep going. Before you have a discussion with a child and tell a six-year-old child that there's a chance that she's a... You have a paternity test. If you have a question, then you know. You don't tell her first because you feel as if you have to get it off your chest that you were messing around. He was messing around first, Your Honor. Who cares? He didn't become pregnant. As far as I know, that's not a possibility yet. Fool. And she's really ticked. That's the other thing we love about it. She's not, she's not acting here. It's righteous indignation. Judge Judy turns to the father. Mr. Johnson, I don't understand why your children live with her. I don't get that. Maybe she's the better parent. Maybe between the two of you, as marginal a human being as she is, maybe she's more capable of raising them. That would be very sad for your children. Now, tell me your version of the events. 
surrounding this paternity test? Your Honor, I'm a truck driver. Um, I was on my way back from Utah. I uh, got a phone call from my mother saying that we had a little problem. Step up, please. Your last name is? Stenkamp. Why did you call your son and when? I believe it was on the 25th of August. It was their week to have the girls. And Amanda... Whose week to have the girls? Uh, David and his wife's. It's split custody, the state of Idaho. So uh, me and his wife went and picked the girls up at the police station from Kathy and her boyfriend. And Amanda just didn't seem to be right. And so during dinner, she was helping cook. And I said, you know, is something wrong Grandma can help you with? Yes. Mama took me to see some man named Jay and said that it was my dad and that David was not my dad and that she was going to have a paternity test done, take away my dad David's rights, and whoever this guy is over here was going to adopt her as Mr. his. Mr. Genius over here? Yes. Was Mr. Never Files tax her. returns paid in cash? And, and I said, Amanda, you are our child. So this, clearly, this test put her mind at rest. Yes, ma'am. I assume that somebody made her aware of the test results. Yes, ma'am. I did. And Judge Judy turns right on back to the mother. All I know is, madam, you are one of the most marginal people that I've come across in a long time, and you haven't even said two words. You're going to pay for this paternity test, and I'm going to tell you why. Because you created the situation that placed doubt in the mind of an 11-year-old child without having proof positive first, and for no reason. Because I'm sure this person, Jay, that you took her to see was a bum. She has never met him. How did she know his name? I have told her his name, but she has never seen him ever. What difference does it make? What context did you tell her his name? I that he may be her father? Yes. You're a moron! And you still don't even get it. You still don't get it. Does she work? No, ma'am. She doesn't work? No, ma'am. You pay child support? Uh, we have split custody. Neither one of us pay child support. How much was the paternity test? The receipt here for $275. And how much money did you lose by not going to work that day? I lost uh, $560. It, it was a load. I drive truck. I don't care what it was. $560. That's what you lost. Is that yes, correct? Correct. What? Are you going to tell me that you do work? I just got my SSI. Would I you just do, quit would you, Walmart. Would you answer my question? Are you going to tell me that you do work? Not right now. I do not. I am disabled. You have any problem with her performing her household duties, sir? Once in a while, yes. Doesn't inhibit you from being her boyfriend, right? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. Judgment for the plaintiff in the amount of $835. Step out. Parties are excused. And by the way, when she finds out these people get SSI and they're in their 30s, which means they're going to get paid by us the rest of her life, this really sends her off the rails. And by the way, I'm just hoping some government official arrests these people because she's clearly able-bodied. She's a scam artist. She got another guy not paying taxes, working off the books. And this is why people love Judge Judy. And by the way, you'd think that she's a Republican listening to this. She's a Democrat. She's just outraged at government stupidity. And she's really outraged at absolute inane behavior by human beings and just deeply immoral behavior by human beings. And it's damn entertaining. We got any uh, good ones on the hopper, Greg? Not yet. Not yet. That is an untenable situation for somebody to have to live with. Hey, listen. But there's something I want to bring out here with this thing. Okay. And and, and that's this whole... Everybody what? probably is looking at this woman and saying she's awful. 
But I think there's a universal kind of thing happening here, and that is this kind of parent bashing that happens among married and divorced people. And in itself, it's it's child abuse, and people really need to make sure that they're not bashing their their partner or their former partner in front of their kids. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. And that's why she Good. called him a moron, by the way. That's why she called her a moron. And she is a moron. And this is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. We love Judge Judy and we love bringing Judge Judy to you. And thanks, Jesse, for working the soundboard as always. Yeah. Listen to me. Just answer this question. Not only are you not a very nice person, you're also a slob. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And the other day I was flying, and I bumped across an airline magazine article about intentionally planning to eat with people you don't know. That's right, I just said it. It talked about a company called Eat With, where you can sign up to attend a stranger's dinner party that they host in their home, and every guest is a complete stranger. But not so once the dinner is over. And that's the beauty of this. And we're fortunate to be joined by one of the first employees of Eat With, Noam Klinger. When she joined the company in 2014, it was a startup in Tel Aviv, Israel, with only six or seven employees. And she was the community manager for one of their two markets. Now they're in, get this, 200 cities across the globe and coming to a market near you. And she's now the global chief operating officer. And Noam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get into Eat With, let's talk about you. Tell us about your childhood in Israel. We always like to talk to people involved in business life. Your childhood in Israel and what it was like, and how did it shape you? So I grew up in Israel in a small neighborhood just outside of Tel Aviv, a place where everyone knew everyone, and the, I grew up with people who are still my best friends till, till this very day. I even married uh, my neighbor, who was my best friend as a child. So a wonderful childhood. Um, as a family, we traveled extensively, and my parents always pushed me to see the world, to immerse myself in other cultures, and to follow my passions and dreams. There's, um, you know, this talk about the Jewish mother who will keep her children close to her. So my mother was the opposite. She kept saying, go travel, meet people, try new things, and that's what I did. So when I graduated... When I got out of the Army, I traveled in South America for a year. I lived in New York. I lived in Barcelona and London. I traveled in India for a very long time. And I think this played a a great role in shaping the person I am today. Moreover, food has always been a great, great passion of mine and a big part of my family culture. We used to cook together. We used to host a lot of people. Every Friday dinner, we would host 20 to 30 people, an open table, and me and my father will create a new menu each week and produce it and host, and the door will be open, and people will join the table, and we keep this tradition till this very day. Now I'm trying to do it myself in San Francisco. <laughs> and if, I, would, I would guess that in some ways, Noam, the, uh, the, the, the benefits you got from this and the joy you took in it 
uh, was instrumental in you starting and working with, or just at least working with this essential startup. Uh, it was that 20 or 30 so folks every Friday in that, in that family of yours, and not many other families were doing this kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. I was very fortunate to meet Eat West because I felt, in a way, this is a combination of everything I love. And it was an opportunity to bring this passion of mine and my family tradition and culture to my day-to-day work. So I kind of felt like I was raised to this, to this idea of meeting people around the dinner table. And Noam, you, you served in the IDF uh, as an intelligence officer. And folks, for those of you who don't know, in Israel, you're joining the army. Male, female, you're going in in some capacity and you're serving. And you said this in our pre-interview, the Army is a big part of who I am now, my professional skills on how to deal with people and manage big projects. I was only 18 when I went in, and it's an organization of young people, so you have lots of responsibility in your hands. So two things I think are central. Your mom, rather than keep you close, pushed you away and out, but not pushed you away from her. She just wanted you to learn. And by goodness, she probably got you to be closer to her by doing that. So every parent listening... And take note, there are different ways to do these things. But then this military experience, you told us this had a central part of your, uh, sort of your, your, your character being formed early. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. So I think the Army, um, you think of a military service as going into the field, but for me, serving in the intelligence force was a training for the startup culture. I was working in a very innovative uh, unit with... Uh, 200 soldiers by my side. Later, I was the commander of 200 people. So in the age of 20, I had 200 people who reported to me. This is a huge experience for a 20 years old. Well, you, can't like, like an, you cannot act like an idiot when 200 people are reporting to you. Exactly. And you get a lot of responsibility. You, tr- you train yourself in, in skills that are later very, very relevant to, to acting in the real world. And let's talk about the culture in Tel Aviv, because per capita, next to Silicon Valley, there are more startups there than just about anywhere else in the world. And I don't know that most Americans think of Israel and uh, this city called Tel Aviv as startup nation, but it is. Talk about what's going on there in the water, what's going in there in the culture. Why is Tel Aviv Tel Aviv? So first, I just want to say that after living abroad, I still feel Tel Aviv is one of the best cities to live in. It's a combination of diverse and creative people, old and new. It has the beach. It has an amazing food scene, as well as art and music. And that's along with the startup scene, was really, really strong, and with a mature ecosystem of accelerators, investors, uh, VCs, angels, mentors, um, you can hardly go to lunch without bumping into a fellow funder, developer, or investor. Everyone knows everyone, and there are lots of collaborations and general sense of a community driving everyone forward. Personality-wise, I think the Army, again, and the military service has a lot to do with that. So it's, look at it, I, I kind of like to look at it as a um, startup factory. So a lot of 21 years old graduating from the Army and are already trained in the most innovative units of the Army, ready to join a startup and with a lot of um, actual experience, as well as 
a sense, um, a basic sense that life isn't granted and you never know what's going to happen in Tel Aviv in a year from now, which makes people, um, people tend to take more risks, to be very passionate, to be very aggressive, and not to be afraid of failures. They are willing to, to play it all. And I think this is what creates this sense of excitement and innovation and creation. And Noam, hold that thought. We'll be back to learn more about your dinner party startup, Eat With, after this short break. American Stories, and we're talking with Noam Klinger of Eat With, an Israeli startup that's the Uber or Airbnb of dinner parties. We were just talking about how the culture of Tel Aviv and Israel is so amazingly supportive of startups and risk-taking, the incredible talent pool, the vibrant energy, and the sober realization that Israelis can never quite take tomorrow for granted. So Noam, please tell us more about your particular startup, Eat With. How does it work? So EatWith is a marketplace that brings people together through food and homes around the world. This is the vision, to bring people together. We have about 1,000 hosts, home cooks, and professional chefs in 200 cities globally who host tourists and locals for dinner parties, cooking workshops, and special culinary experiences. You can do it as a tourist when you travel abroad, or you can do it as a local in your own city. It doesn't matter. You can join a table, like you said, with people you don't know and experience something unique together, or you can book the whole table and get a special private culinary experience in the house of the chef. Um, I like to look at it. Think about you going to Barcelona, for example. Um, You can dine with all the tourists in the Rambla and eat paella straight from the microwave, or you can go and meet Alberto and Ella, our host, in their cool apartment, cook with them a paella from scratch and meet their friends, talk about the Catalan culture. I think people nowadays are looking for more intimate, authentic experiences, um, and this is exactly what Eatlist provides. Um, I think that's a, it's a remarkable thing, that authenticity you're talking about, because I think you're dead right. I think more than ever, when it, when it, whether it comes to content or whether it comes to, and I believe you're in the content business, a meal is theater, a meal is, uh, is content, the food is content, the conversation is content, and it's an experience like going to the theater or anything else, and maybe better, um, because these are real-life relationships. You go to the theater, you leave, the only relationship you have is with the person you went to the theater with. You've learned a little more, you've been moved, but that's it. Um, you don't get to know the people in the audience when you're going to a play. 
I think that's what's distinctive here. Talk about how you find the people who host, because I would assume that you have to do a lot of quality control on that space. This isn't like Uber. Um, you've got to make sure that your brand is kept, kept solid and strong and protected by vetting properly the people who are going to be hosting these parties. A couple of bad experiences and your brand name suffers. How do you do that? So you're right. We take the vetting process very, very seriously. Um, we have so some of our hosts. We actually found them ourselves. Um, the other way to go is to apply online and to go through our application process. Then we handpicked the best hosts in every city, the ones who will not only feed you with amazing food but will also give you the full experience. So we're looking for this unique combination that is not only you know how to cook an amazing meal, which is fresh and unique, um, but also the personality of the host. And this is the most important thing for us. So who is the person who will open the door? He has to be a people person, someone who loves hosting, who knows how to control the dinner and to make conversation flowing and to make you feel at home as well as the space, so it has to be clean, it has to have a good vibe in it. Um, so it's a very unique combination. We go through a very um, distinctive application process, and in the very end we do a demo dinner where the chef actually opens his house for, for guests, and our, and our guests... Um, the, the people who are attended multiple Eat With dinners will go to those de- demo dinners along with our staff to vet the actual place and the host. So every host on the platform is vetted. Uh, we take only 4%, 4 to 5% uh, of our applications, and they, they will make it to the platform in the end of the day. Now, uh, you know, what's interesting is I thought food trucks were a fascinating thing that happened, but that's not an experience. It's just an interesting way for people who can't afford to open a storefront to make a living and then maybe open a storefront or maybe not, just have a bunch of food trucks. I think this is fascinating because it gives the person who owns an apartment, just like an Airbnb, to an opportunity for revenue. Plus, it gives the person who might want to do something other than eat in a restaurant get the opportunity to have a real-life experience with someone from Barcelona, or even someone here in Little Oxford, Mississippi, a city, by the way, that lots of tourists from around the world come to because it's the home of William Faulkner, it's the home of the blues, Elvis's Gracie Mansion is not far away, and people from all over the world come to this little pocket of the country. And my goodness, you can go to one of our restaurants, or you could come to my house. My wife could have, well, she loves to have a big open area. We have movie nights on Sunday nights, and we invite random people together on Sunday nights. We've been doing this now for seven months. It's now the joy of our life. We're going to do it forever. Long dinner and then a, a, a movie. And that's every Sunday now. It's getting, we're, we're sort of catching wind in Oxford. Now, we're not doing it for money. I think my point is that this might be an interesting way for someone who can cook to not only host and, and do some interesting things for folks, but people are paying for this experience, correct? Amazing. You just got in. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> And so, so talk about how, how, how this can be a, a neat experience. I mean, obviously, they've got to audition. You've got to have the talent. You've got to be able to cook. And you've got to be able to host, which is equally important, I would think, in this matter. Great meal, but you don't know how to keep the conversation going. 
Still not a great experience. So this is a this takes a real talent. But my goodness, what if you could do this two or three nights a week and you're a stay-at-home mom and you wanted to really make some extra money and also really have a tremendous experience but not risk a lot of capital? Um, this becomes a really interesting earning opportunity uh, for someone who can start to get good ratings from the people who are going and enjoying this, this uh, offering. Talk about exactly. that. Exactly. We have, uh, I would say, 25% of our hosts are using EatWest as their main source of income. The other 75% will do it as a hobby or as a supplement income uh, on the side. But for people who are doing it full-time, this is a huge opportunity. Think of, like, opening a restaurant nowadays. This is a huge risk, a huge financial risk as well as your time and efforts. Um, doing an EatWest doesn't cost anything as a start, and you don't have to risk anything. So for those people, this is an amazing experience to test their recipes, to test their audience, to see how the reactions for their food. And we have hosts who are doing now about $20,000 a month. So wow. you, you can really make an income out of it. Now, do you think that there is going to be a time in the same way that Uber got challenged by local taxi cabs, the same way that food trucks were starting to get challenged by local restaurants going to the city council? Um, do you think there's going to be a time soon, or has it already happened, where some cities through the restaurant associations are going to go, hey, that $20,000 a month was mine. You're not regulated. You're not being taxed. Um, are you worried that some of the things that have happened to Uber and some of the things that have happened to Airbnb are about to happen to you, or are they happening? So first, I'd, I would just say that we're working with restaurants in a very close relationship. So we had uh, some famous ho- uh, chefs from famous restaurants who decided to do an Eat With event just to have a more personal connection to their audience and to invite people to their own kitchens. So I don't see it as a direct competition, but as a collaboration that can come along. Obviously, the regulation is always a good question. Um, We're opening opening a new category. It's a new... It's a new economy, the sharing economy, and it raises a lot of questions that hadn't been answered so far. But we will get to them when the time comes, and I'm sure we can find a solution with each um, city council and state as it comes. And I'm sure you're right, because in the end, and this is what I found, you know, the other day I'm sitting in my little town of Oxford, Mississippi, a big college town, and the kids are talking about how the town was trying to block Uber, and they had successfully vetoed and worked over the city council and said, hey, come on, and now there's Uber in our, in our little town, and in the end, the citizens are going to make the decision, and the politicians just have to be very careful, because people want choices, and that choice is not only of where to eat, but also choices of how to make a living. And this sharing economy is new, and I think in the end it's going to work through all of its growing pains. This is Our American Stories, and after these messages, we'll continue our conversation with Noam Klinger of Eatwith, an Israeli startup looking to change how we eat when traveling, or around even our own hometowns. More after these messages. Everywhere I go, I keep saying the same old thing. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we've been talking to Noam Klinger of Eat With about how her company brings together total strangers for beautiful gatherings in the homes of thoroughly vetted hosts. Well, they may start as strangers, but I bet they don't stay that way for long. Noam, will you please tell us some of your favorite stories about folks who met at Eat With Dinners? Of course. So I have a lot of them. You know, three years of people around tables produces a lot of content. Uh, I was just invited to a wedding that will happen next summer of one of our top hosts in Barcelona who matches future wife in an Eat With Dinner. So she was a guest and he was a host, um, which is a beautiful story. Uh, this is not the first wedding we had at Eat With. We had two hosts who got married. They met through Eat With Meetup and they got married. And we have a lot of love stories coming our ways from people who met around the table as guests. And we have uh, guests who named their newborn after the name of their host because they had such an amazing experience. So they send us a letter with the photo of their kid and the story. And one of my favorite hosts in uh, Rome, she was a real estate agent in, uh, in our past, and now she's a full-time Eat West host. And she, every time she has guests over, she will either go with them afterwards to a party. She will hang out with them the day after. And she really creates those meaningful experiences. In, in last uh, April, she visited Israel and stayed in guests she hosted before in her house. She stayed now in their home uh, on our travel to Israel. And we had the opposite way when a guest, a host from Israel, who hosted a lot of Americans along the years, decided to do a road trip along the, um, the West Coast, staying at her former guest houses. So they invited her to stay at their place after they dined with her in Israel. That's terrific. And Noam, we've noticed that you're on the board for the Israeli branch of Nifty the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. We absolutely love this group, and we had on our show the two best friends who won Nifty's 2013 National Youth Entrepreneurship Challenge with their business built around socks that securely hold shin guards for soccer players. You can hear that interview on our website, by the way, at ouramericannetwork.org. Now, um, we talked earlier about the superb culture for entrepreneurship and startups in Tel Aviv, and throughout Israel. So it's natural that Nifty would want to work with Israelis. Please tell us more about Nifty, what the group is doing in Israel, and how you participate. Share a favorite memory or two. Okay, so you touched one of my favorite projects I'm involved in, and I'm happy you asked about it. Um, So as you said, Nifty, the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, originally it's an American program, but it was brought to Israel, I think, in 2006, I hope I'm not wrong, um, and their mission is to provide educational programs that inspire young people from low-income or deprived communities to stay in school, to recognize business opportunity, and to plan for a successful future. Basically, take the tools that we have in our day-to-day day-to-day professional world and to give it to them in the early when they're young um, it's not about turning them into entrepreneurs or make or 
building businesses. It's about giving them the basic tools and networking skills, asking questions, innovation, working in teams, and all those skills, the soft skills that actually help them to be better people in the end of the day and to open up doors for them in, in their future. I'm in love with this project. I've seen amazing cases of people who got to really change their life through this program. I just, um, I think a week ago, the global competition of the NIFTY teams from all around the world met in New York, and I just got the photos of the Israeli team of four boys who took the flight the first time of their life. They mm. bought a suit for the first time of their life, and they had to pitch in English for 10 minutes about their new startup idea. And for them, that was a life-changing experience. Oh, indeed. You know, what I find is, and I've worked with uh, some inner-city kids here in, in the United States on this, and they're always thinking, how can I do a startup? I have no money. And I said, look, you do a startup because you might have a great idea. And someone with money might give you not only the money, they might give you the training. There's a thing called social capital. And very often what we're looking for is your idea and you, not your money. We're looking for you. And I think that there's such a level of ignorance about how companies get started, who starts them, and how they get started. And I'm so glad that you're working with Nifty. It's it's such a tremendous organization. If we can educate young people about this, we might just bump into a few more risk takers who were young. Look, I'm Lebanese. You're Israeli. It's in our blood. I mean, in, in, my, in my family, if you don't go out and start a company or do something, you're disinherited. Um, we have to do it. So it, it's just a, it's a cultural thing. Um, how often do you personally attend Eat With Dinners, Noam? Uh, just you yourself. Do you spend time in the field just dropping in on Eat With Dinners? So you touched the fun part of my job. I try to do it as much as I can. I'm a strong believer in keeping like con- straight connection with the host and the guests. So I try in I try to go as much as I can. There were times when it was three to four times a week. Now I have a two years old back home. So I do it less, but I if I'm not at dinners I would talk with hosts, I would talk with guests daily. I felt this is a big part of making this product and service better and understanding how to move forward. Yep. That's a great idea. You know, Bernie Marcus, one of my heroes, we did an hour on him. He's the founder of Home Depot. He said that half his life he spent just visiting the stores and making sure the connection between the customer and the people on the, on the front lines were tight and then giving them the resources to solve their problems. But he was always concerned with the interface of the customer and the product and the rest of it be damned, and make sure that management is responsible for that, that position. And so I'm sure that's uh, got to be a preoccupation with you. Those dinners start to go down in quality, and you've got yourself a problem, don't you? Mm-hmm. And let's talk about one last thing before we leave. You decided to leave Tel Aviv uh, and bring your corporate team over to San Francisco. Uh, how, how has that experience been different? And talk about what life's like in the Bay Area uh, since you've moved. So I just moved three weeks ago, and I must say it's an amazing experience so far. Um, I'm still investigating the city and trying myself to meet as many people as I can and to experience food and culture 
and there's a lot to experience here, that's for sure. Well, you're at the perfect company to do that, by the way. <laughs> I mean, just start doing Eat With Dinners, and you'll meet lots of people in the city. Exactly. And, exactly. Uh, it, Noam, this is a wonderful story. Eat With is the company, and my goodness, what a great idea to bring people together. We're talking to Noam Klinger, and this is just a part of our regular Entrepreneur Series. And thank you so much for joining us, Noam. This is Our American Stories, and we just love stories like that. Culture of entrepreneurship, leadership, great food, world-class hospitality. What more can you ask for? We've been talking to Noam Klinger of Eat With about her Israeli-born startup that connects folks who don't know each other to have great dinner parties. It's like Uber. It's like Airbnb. But for dinner, conversation, and making friends in new places. And by the way, make you and your family a little bit extra money on the side. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're playing Johnny Cash's Hurt, the cover of Trent Reznor's great song, because we're doing a segment about recovering from addiction, which we do from time to time, because it's a problem that hits almost every American family in some form or another. Here in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast from, a beautiful town not far south from Memphis, they had an event titled Telling Oxford. Six addicts and a hundred members of the community got together at an old power plant, ate dinner, and shared stories about how they overcame addiction. And our faith went over there to cover it. And this is one of those stories from a 23-year-old named Carol. She starts by describing how addiction destroys hope. The hopes and dreams kind of seem to be my theme and kind of seems to be what's going on in my life today. You know, I know when you're little, people always ask, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I wanted to be a nurse. Like that was, I knew that like 100%. You know, I grew up with the most amazing parents that you could ask for. Um, you know, I had a great childhood and couldn't have been better. 
I was hopeful as a kid. You know, I had a lot of hope. Um, I've always known that I want to get to be a mom one day. Um, I just kind of know that in my gut. You know, I think as I got older, I continued to stay hopeful. But when drugs were introduced to me and I made the decision to use for the first time, I didn't know what all I was giving up at that time. I started using drugs and alcohol when I was 17 years old, um, getting ready to graduate high school. It didn't take long for me for my life to spiral out of control. You know, that hope was gone. Um, the hope to be anything that I'd ever maybe thought about. You know, I just couldn't even fathom having those feelings again or having that kind of hope to want to do anything else in my life. Carol further shares how addiction had taken hold of everything. You know, I spent the next couple of years in and out of um, treatment centers, jails, and other institutions. You know, a lot of people have that thought of, um, you know, oh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit doing this, I'm going I'm to quit this time, I'm going to try it again, I'm just going to do something different. But, but by the time I got ready to come, before I came to treatment here, there was, like, no more quitting. I, I kind of just surrendered to that my life, I was going to be a junkie for the rest of my life, and that that's just the way it was going to be, and I, and I almost was just okay with that, or so I thought, you know. And when I came to Oxford, I didn't know if I wanted this thing. Like, I didn't know if I wanted a life of recovery because I couldn't imagine what that would look like. I thought I had ruined any possibility of having meaningful relationships with any, any person. Uh, my family, thank God, had to love me from a distance. You know, they had to make the decisions to not financially support me or let me live in their house or let me have a car of theirs um, if I was choosing, you know to live that kind of lifestyle and, you know, thank God that they did, that I didn't have very many, very many enablers in my life. Luckily, Carol had that kind of family, but even with a loving family, she realized that she needed to seek further help to break free from drugs. And she found that in her new home here in Oxford. What I found here um, was hope that I'd had, um, and it was a new, a new kind of hope. You know, I met a lot of the speakers tonight and have all played vital roles in my life and in my recovery. You know, in particular, they, they had found a reason to keep living and were able to do so without the use of mood or mind-altering substances or behaviors because it's not just drugs and alcohol that we struggle with. It can be anything. I got here and I saw that in these women and, you know, men too, but I, and I just clung on to that. You know, y'all that are here tonight and getting to do that showed me and, and introduced me to more people. They're like, hey, you're, we're not alone. There's more of us that know how to that live a life. Where there's more of us that have felt hopeless too, and that showed me that how to do that. You know, introduced me to hundreds of people my age. I was 20 years old when I got here, and if I make it, my birthday is Monday, and that'll be my third birthday in a row. I celebrate clean and sober. <laughs> Pretty damn cool is right. Three years sober, she did that by taking it one day at a time. Carol's hope returned as her life began to change. You know, my life now uh, is beyond my wildest dreams. Um, you know, I get to be, a, you know, I'm an addict amongst, amongst other things, like I said earlier. I'm an employee. I'm a, I'm a really good employee, which is like not familiar for me back in the day. 
you know, I just got a new job, like, as a manager somewhere, and um, it, it blows my mind, that, and I'm able to do that, and I show up there regularly, like, when they ask me to, and I, <laughs> y'all get it, the ones that are laughing, y'all get it, and, um, and I, feel, I feel so proud of what I get to do in my life today. A little bit later, Carol talked about learning the importance of taking care of herself, and then she talked a little bit about the fact that she was not the only one who had at one point lost hope. No one thought she would make it. Carol proved everybody wrong. You know, when I was in high school and I was starting to spiral out of control and using drugs and alcohol, I had not one but two teachers tell me that I would never make it to college, much less graduate or do anything. I'm a full-time college student and I'm in the Honor Society at Northwest Community College here in Oxford and I'm beyond proud of that. Um, you know, if you would have asked me. <laughs> you know, and I, people say, well, someone asked me today, just a few minutes ago, Angie was, you know, well, what, what are you going for your degree in? And I've changed my mind so many times because, and I know this sounds harsh, but I really just didn't expect to live this long. I, when I lost that hope, I really, I just didn't know. I mean, 23, I'm just, I'm kind of winging it right now. I'm just figuring it out as I go. God, it's, things are so, there's so much hope in recovery. And to say that, you know, there have still been times that I have been in this program for a little over two years now that I've struggled, that I've wanted to give up several times. But there's people here in this town, it's so special to me. You know, I know this is a worldwide Recovery is worldwide, but we have something so special in Oxford, we really do, of people who just truly care about your well-being. That's not negotiable for me to have people in my life that just aren't, you know, genuine and really care about each other's, you know, down to the core. Even when it hurts, you know, I've surrounded myself with women who will help me to see when I'm in the wrong, and that's important for me. Because just like Billy said, you know, I'm just one drink, drug, or anything, I can go right back to that lifestyle. So true and so raw. Carol closes with gratitude for her friends, for her family, for unconditional love. Those moments of clarity that you have that are, can be real small, that can be life-changing. Is, you know, I think one of the last times that my mom had to see me through a glass window um, in an orange jumpsuit. You know, I, I pray she never has to do that again. She didn't ask for this either. That is a family disease, and I truly believe that with every piece of my body that it affects every person involved. I'll never know what it's like, I hope. I, at this point in my life, I, I don't know what it's like to be a parent of a, an addict or an alcoholic or someone struggling with the disease of addiction, but I can only imagine how hard it would be. I don't think that our family members and friends even get enough credit for being superheroes, for trying to love us through that. I'm just really, really, really grateful to have that. The people I've surrounded myself with today just, they love me, and I just, they just because, they do. Like, there's no, I, have, I don't have to do anything for that love, you know? Um, they just love who I am as a person. If you've ever kind of been in that realm in the world of addiction, that's not so much the case. We're not, and I'm not able to do that either. I'm not able to truly love people um, at the core of my being if I'm using drugs and alcohol. And thanks for sharing, Carol. And by the way, we did a, a piece on a mom who wrote a letter to her heroin-addicted daughter. And so, no, if 
you want to know what it's like, you can catch that, Carol. We could share it with you. And Faith, what brought you to this story? You know, the goal of this event, Lee, was to just help remove the stigma that surrounds addiction. Um, These are our friends, our family, our brothers, our sisters, our cousins, you know, and they were so brave to share their stories in this way. Um, I just think that the another goal of the event was to greatly to emphasize just how addiction is a disease and that what do you do with people with diseases? You treat them, you get them support and help, and you can't do that when it's not out in the open. And that's how they're going to get the support and help when they're able to share without fear of judgment. Well, I think that's what we heard. And thanks to the Oxford Treatment Center for doing this. And thanks, Carol, for your courage. And it sounded like a whole bunch of people there supporting her. And it is one day at a time, and it is forever. Anybody who's been around an addict knows this and knows it deeply. So always be praying for them. If you're praying, you're the praying type, and we, many of us are here in Our American Stories. Say a prayer for anybody you know. Root for them. They need your love, and they need particularly, as you heard it, unconditional love. They've got to get away from that shame. They've got to break that shame, and as Faith said, that stigma. This is Our American Stories. We tell you every kind of story here. Recovering from addiction is one of the regular segments on our show. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do.